One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Buccaneers at Falcons. Kickoff Sunday, December 10th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 41. Game Overview by Hilo. The Buccaneers were forced to play with a skeleton crew on defense in Week 13, missing three of their five most talented individual players against the Panthers, linebackers Devin White and Levante David, as well as cornerback Jamal Dean. Dean and White were held out of practice on Wednesday, while David returned as a full participant. Buccaneers nose tackle Vita Vea missed practice on Wednesday with a toe injury, but appears likely to suit up on Sunday, considering he has practiced sparingly in practices all season, but continues to play through various ailments. The Falcons are likely to continue banging their proverbial heads against the wall through the run game, unless otherwise forced, regardless of matchup or expected efficiency. That's just what we get from this team under current leadership. Mike Evans is on an absolute tear, seeing double-digit targets in three of his last four games and hitting nine in the other, and scoring seven touchdowns in his previous seven contests. The Buccaneers have evolved, or devolved, into an offense centered around two players, Mike Evans and Rashad White. How Tampa Bay Will Try to Win The Buccaneers rank right near the middle of the pack in PROE, but have largely struggled to sustain drives this season, resulting in just 61.1 offensive plays run from scrimmage per game and a 23rd-ranked 19.4 points per game average. Furthermore, they are averaging just 18.75 points per game over their last four contests and have just one game since their Week 5 bye with more than 21 points scored. In other words, this team has rarely been the driving force behind the eventual game environment they find themselves in, instead adopting a more reactionary stance as far as offensive design goes. What is interesting about the recent scoring trends for the Buccaneers is a defense that is playing much better of late, likely influenced most by the transition back to the roots of head coach Todd Bowles, who has this defense playing more cover 2, cover 3, and quarter alignments in a zone-heavy scheme. On offense, the Buccaneers have become more concentrated of late, with the bulk of their offense running through two players, wide receiver Mike Evans and running back Rashad White. Chris Godwin has not seen more than seven targets since week seven, the wide receiver three role has been divided amongst two or three players of late, and tight end Kate Otten has not seen more than a modest five targets in a month, despite playing all but six offensive snaps during that time. As mentioned above, Rashad White has become a borderline workhorse for the Buccaneers of late. His season-long snap rate stands at an elite 76.7%, and his 72.5% team opportunity share ranks ninth in the league. Furthermore, he has played 80% or more of the team's offensive snaps in five of the previous six games, and has played 70% or more of the offensive snaps in every game this season. His opportunity totals during the most recent five-game stretch stand at 25, 17, 16, 23, and 24 giving us a solid idea of an expected range of outcomes in varying game environments. White is going to remain heavily involved in the weekly game plan for the Buccaneers, with ultimate opportunity count subject to game environment on a weekly basis. The pure rushing matchup is another difficult one on paper against a Falcons defense holding opposing backs to just 3.9 yards per carry, behind 1.7 yards allowed before contact this season. The Falcons have also filtered just 59 targets to running backs this season, good for sixth fewest in the league. Chase Edmonds has emerged as the de facto change of pace back behind White, but he has yet to see more than a modest six opportunities at any point this season while playing for the Buccaneers. Also, as mentioned earlier, the passing game has primarily run through Mike Evans of late. 
Chris Godwin and Kate Otten join Evans as the three near every down pass catchers, as does running back Rashad White, but it's Evans that has run laps around the others since the team's week five bye. In other words, if this pass offense is succeeding, the production is highly likely to be flowing through Evans, and to a lesser extent White. The Falcons have run man and zone at near league average rates this season, giving Evans and his ridiculous 38.8% target rate against man coverage some room to run in this spot. The Falcons have allowed the 7th deepest ADOT at 8.4 yards, but have really cracked down on yak allowed, seeding the 6th fewest yards after the catch through 13 weeks. Furthermore, the Falcons have generated pressure at an above average and borderline elite 24.3% rate this season behind a moderate 24.9% blitz rate, meaning the Bucks are likely to see an interesting mix of man and zone coverages as well as increased pressure. How Atlanta will try to win It comes as no surprise that the Falcons want to continue running their offense with extreme rush rate over expectation values. They currently hold the highest rush rate over expectation value, third highest overall rush rate at 48.92%, and average the third most rush attempts per game at 32.2. The difference between the 2023 and 2022 seasons is that their defense is performing to a level that has allowed those offensive tendencies to translate to notches in the win column, as the team is now just one win away from matching their 2022 total with five games left to play. The Atlanta defense currently ranks top 10 in total yards allowed per game at 315.9, good for 10th, and points allowed per game at 20.0, which ranks 7th, while allowing only 208.1 pass yards per game, ranked 11th. The combination of those two pieces has allowed the Falcons to shorten games. They allow the 11th fewest offensive plays per game as they look to eke out victories in the fourth quarter. For perspective, the Falcons currently find themselves atop the NFC South at 6-6, while being outscored by their opponents by 14 points this season. Furthermore, half of those wins have come in their three divisional games, as they currently stand at a perfect three wins and zero losses against their divisional opponents this season. A loss to the Buccaneers this week would actually flip-flop the two in the standings in the division as they would be tied in head-to-head, have equal 3-1 divisional records, and the Buccaneers would move to 5-4 in conference play, while the Falcons would fall to 4-5. It has been six calendar weeks since these two teams last played, when the Falcons fed their trio of backs 32 combined carries to just 25 Desmond Ridder pass attempts, which was that weird, Bijan Robinson is sick and not likely to play, but will give him a late fourth-quarter rush attempt to mess with his DFS salary the following week game. Expect more of the same here, with Atlanta highly likely to continue hammering the ball inside until otherwise forced. After being brought along frustratingly slow, rookie running back Bijan Robinson has opportunity counts over his previous three games of 23, 22, and 24, after just two games with 20 or more opportunities during his first nine NFL contests. He also has five or more targets in two-thirds of his games this season, 8 of 12, highlighting his importance to the current form of this Atlanta Falcons team. Tyler Algier saw 24 opportunities the last time these two teams played while operating as the lead back, while Corderell Patterson saw 10 of his own, which returns another solid opportunity for Robinson to see 22 to 25 opportunities in this spot. Algier has seen between 8 and 10 opportunities in each of the previous three games, aligning with the increased workload for Robinson. The matchup against the Buccaneers is poor on paper as the team has held opponents to 3.9 yards per carry behind just 1.15 yards allowed before contact. That said, injuries to Vita Vea, who's playing hurt, Devin White, and Levante David paid the way for Chuba Hubbard to amass 104 yards and two scores on the ground a week ago. Those three represent such a large portion of what has made the Buccaneers a top-run defense in recent history, 
It looks like the Bucks will get back David this week, while Vea appears content to continue to play through his ailments. Either way, this matchup should be considered slightly better in actuality than it appears on paper. The Atlanta passing offense should realistically be thought of as Drake London, and then everyone else. London is the only skill position player seeing a near every down roll in this offense, typically playing between 85 and 95% of the team's offensive snaps. Mac Hollins appears set to return from a three-game absence, which is likely to make the snap dispersal amongst Cotterell Hodge, Van Jefferson, Scotty Miller, and Hollins increasingly convoluted. We can make those assumptions based on the recent tendencies at tight end, as Parker Hesse returned in Week 12 from an extended absence only to mix in with the other three healthy and active tight ends as opposed to being inactive or forcing an inactive status from one of the other three. All of Kyle Pitts, Jonu Smith, Michael Pruitt, and Hesse have seen meaningful snaps in each of the previous two games, making it that much more likely that we see Hollins return to further complicate things as far as snaps and opportunities go in this pass offense. London's 23.1% target share ranks on the wide receiver 2, wide receiver 3 border, but his robust 30.3% red zone target share challenges the elites at the position. Conditions have to be right for London to be useful for us in DFS, considering the low expected weekly pass volume, which goes beyond superficially examining the matchup. As has been made evident all season, this team cares less about matchups to dictate or govern their offensive plan, instead reliant on game environment to get them away from a likely run-heavy approach. That means that we shouldn't expect more than 5-7 to seven targets for London, unless the team is placed in catch-up mode, meaning London is optimally deployed in conjunction with a member of the other side, at least from a theoretical sense. Likeliest Game Flow With the Falcons content to continue in a battering ram approach on offense, due to their ability to suppress offensive production with their defense, the governing force behind any change from a more muted game environment resides with the Buccaneers. The biggest problem there is is that the Bucs are averaging just 18.75 points per game over the previous month of play and have scored more than a modest 21 points just once in their past eight games since their week five bye. That makes the likeliest scenario here a spot where the Falcons are likely to be the driving force behind the overall game environment, stepping a lot of the upside from the primary skill position players away in the process. That said, all of Bijan Robinson, Drake London, and Mike Evans carry the individual talent to flip that script on its head, with the most potential leverage likely in the pairing of London with Evans. Rams at Ravens. Kickoff Sunday, December 10th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 40. Game Overview by Hilo. Another potential weather spot per current forecast. Tight end Tyler Higby has a neck injury and did not practice Wednesday for the Rams, while wide receiver Puka Nakua has a shoulder injury and was limited. Wide receiver Rashad Bateman, out with an illness, was the only Ravens player to miss practice on Wednesday, although he appears likely to play on Sunday. Baltimore averages 27 points per game, which is ranked 7th in the league, and has held opponents to the fewest points per game this season at just 15.6. They also rattled off five consecutive games of 31 points or more, before faltering against the Chargers and scoring only 20. In other words, the Ravens are about as elite as they come this year and are quietly putting together an elite all-around season despite innumerable major injuries to both sides of the ball, again. How Los Angeles will try to win The Rams have been steady Eddie this year, quietly going about their business while averaging an 11th-ranked 22.3 points per game. Furthermore, the Rams have averaged a robust 31.75 points per game over their previous four games since their Week 9 bye, with wins over the Saints, Bears, and Chargers during that span, as well as a 29-22 loss to the Packers in Week 12. 
Now, that is not exactly a murderer's row of opponents, but the point remains. This team, under Sean McVay's tutelage and Matthew Stafford's resurgency, is currently no joke. In fact, that recent surge of three wins in four games has the Rams within striking distance of a playoff spot after sputtering out of the gates this year. They are one of four teams currently tied at 6-6 six and six in the NFC, with those four teams the likeliest teams to secure the 6-7 and seven seeds and they find themselves in that spot while fighting through numerous injuries of their own. Cooper Cup started the season off by missing the first four games and was injured in another. Kyron Williams missed four games in the middle of the season. Matthew Stafford left one game early and missed the following game with an injury. And now Puka Nakua is dealing with an injury that held him to 63% of the offensive snaps a week ago, and tight end Tyler Higby started the week with a DNP and an injury of his own. On the other side of the ball, what this team has managed to do with the level of talent they have has been nothing short of remarkable. We all scoffed at the way this defense looked on paper prior to the start of the season, and all they've done this year is hold opponents to 21.1 points per game, ranked 14th in the league, on 330.8 total yards per game, which ranks 16th. In other words, this defense should not be performing as well as they have this year without elite coaching. Kyron Williams has held one of the most robust roles of any back in the league when healthy, capable of playing nearly every offensive snap when called upon by his coaching staff. Williams has three games of seven total healthy games without Cam Akers at 94% or more of the offensive snaps this season, which is absolutely absurd in today's NFL game. His 83.7% snap rate ranks first, his 41 red zone touches rank fifth, and that's with the four games missed, and his route participation ranks third. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more valuable back in 2023 that is not named Christian McCaffrey. For years, the Ravens were better attacked through the air due to elite linebackers and the presence of an elite nose tackle, but this season has been a little different. Baltimore currently ranks first by a metric mile in net yards allowed per pass attempt at 4.2, while ranking 20th in yards allowed per carry at 4.3. Routinely positive game script has made it so the Ravens face a rush on only 36.71% of their defensive snaps, fourth lowest in the league, but it is most definitely the clearest way to attack this defense this season. Just five combined touchdowns allowed to opposing backs has kept the Ravens at 11th in DK points allowed per game to the position, which is more a testament to their elite red zone defense than anything else. There are a few moving parts with the Los Angeles pass offense due to injuries to tight end Tyler Higby and wide receiver Puka Nakua. I would expect Nakua to play through his shoulder ailment while Higby's status is more up in the air for Week 14. Either way, Nakua is outperforming Cooper Cup in almost every meaningful metric this season, except target rate against man coverage. And even then, Nakua has experienced a recent surge in his marks against man. On a standard week with everyone healthy, Nakua, Cup, and Higby are the near-every-down pass catchers in this offense, with Tutu Atwell, Ben Skoronek, Demarcus Robinson, and Hunter Long rotating through the remaining snaps. Most notably, Robinson has played near 60% of the team's offensive snaps in consecutive weeks. Whether that's a trend or necessity due to the recent injuries remains to be seen. The matchup through the air is as difficult as they come considering the metrics mentioned earlier. How Baltimore will try to win The Ravens ranked 12th in PROE this season, but averaged just 28.5 pass attempts per game, which ranks 31st in the league, highlighting a few things for us regarding this offense. Firstly, the Ravens have been highly efficient when they do pass and have been looking to attack downfield, with quarterback Lamar Jackson ranking 8th in intended air yards per pass attempt of qualified quarterbacks to play more than 7 games this year. Secondly, Baltimore has largely been in control of their game environments while averaging a robust 27 points scored per game. 
And finally, this team still intends to pound the rock on the ground at a high rate when they control game environments, evidenced by their league-leading 32.5 rush attempts per game. A now-healthy defense has performed to expectations after struggling through injuries to start the 23 season in addition to the previous two years, allowing the offense to basically win how they see fit while holding opponents to just 15.6 points per game, fewest in the league. In other words, this team is quietly putting together a powerhouse season without much national attention, which is confusingly still being placed on the underperforming Chiefs and Bills in addition to the Dolphins and the AFC. The final note here, and it's an important one, is that the Ravens continue to be a franchise that has no problem making a statement against opponents that they deem as capable of putting up points. That was demonstrated most recently in their blowout win over the Lions in Week 7 and the Seahawks in Week 9, two games that came in the midst of the team scoring 31 points or more in five consecutive contests. Yes, the Ravens averaged the most rush attempts per game of any team this season. It must also be understood that those carries are typically divided amongst at least three ball carriers, with quarterback Lamar Jackson accounting for 9.3 carries and 2.3 red zone carries per game this season. That roughly equates to 23 combined carries for the top two running backs per game, considering the Ravens continue to utilize a timeshare at the position, most recently split amongst rookie back Keaton Mitchell, veteran short yardage back Gus Edwards, and veteran change of pace back Justice Hill. All three continue to be involved in this offense on a weekly basis, sapping a lot of the upside from all parties involved from a fantasy perspective. The pure rushing matchup should be considered middling against a Rams defense allowing 4.2 yards per carry behind an inflated 1.4 yards allowed before contact. The Rams have been playing extreme rates of zone coverage. More specifically, they are near the top of the league in cover 3 and cover 4 utilization with those two alignments making up almost 60% of their defensive snaps this season. That's important to note in this spot because the Ravens' top performer against those two defensive alignments has been tight end Mark Andrews for the better part of the previous four seasons, and nobody has really emerged as an elite option from the remaining pass catchers. Odell Beckham Jr. has excelled against cover one this season, leading the team in efficiency metrics against that primary coverage, but the Rams play almost zero cover one. Rookie wide receiver Zay Flowers has yet to fully take advantage of cover three and cover four, seeing below 20% of the team's targets against those coverages. Which brings us to Isaiah Likely, who has yet to fully take advantage of the bump in snaps with Andrews on the sideline. Likely has played 73 and 74% of the offensive snaps in the previous two games since Andrews went down with a season-ending injury, seeing just eight total targets in those two games. That said, those came on just 32 and 26 Lamar Jackson pass attempts, which has room to grow to the upside should the Ravens approach this game through more aerial aggression, as could be the case considering previous offensive tendencies. And we know the kind of usage the Baltimore tight ends receive in the red zone, which has been robust over each of the previous four years. More on this stance in the DFS Plus Interpretation section, available on OneWeekSeason.com. Likeliest Game Flow This one is of particular intrigue to me. Likeliest scenario has the Ravens controlling all aspects of the game environment via their robust ground attack and a stifling defense, which most will see as theoretically reducing the upside of all players housed in this game. That said, the other side of that coin deals with the recent offensive tendencies exhibited under this coaching regime, which includes aggressive tendencies against opponents that are capable of scoring points of their own merit. In other words, we've seen the Ravens keep their foot on the gas if they feel their opponent has a capable offense, most notably scoring 31 points or more in five consecutive games before being limited to 20 against a broken Chargers team. All of that to say the Ravens carry extreme upside as a team in the midst of the dark ages of scoring around the league against any opponent and on any given week. Touchdown variance has been a real tool for Lamar Jackson in particular, 
something that we know can flip the other direction in a hurry while playing for such a high-powered offense. Suffice to say, Jackson remains near the top of my early week list on what has been labeled one of the grossest weeks in recent NFL history, as someone pointed out on Twitter. Sorry, I forget who it was. There was exactly one instance of a game carrying a 33-point game total or lower over the previous decade, between 2013 and 2022, and this week could make five this season, assuming we get the three games currently in that range to close below that value. Lions at Bears Kickoff Sunday, December 10th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 43. Due to time constraints, the Edge audio for the Lions at Bears game is not available this week. Please visit OneWeekSeason.com to read the game breakdown. Colts at Bengals. Kickoff Sunday, December 10th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 44. Game Overview by Hilo. Colts running back Jonathan Taylor remained out of practice through Thursday and appears likely to miss his second consecutive contest against the Bengals in Week 14. The Bengals have a clean injury report, meaning we have a clear picture of who will play this week. Colts running back Zach Moss handled an insane 94% snap rate in the absence of Jonathan Taylor last week. This feels like it could be setting up as a nice spot for the veteran running back in what is now a solid on-paper matchup. How Indianapolis will try to win The Colts remain exactly neutral in season-long PROE, but have seen some of the heaviest swings in either direction, most commonly quick to make in-game adjustments based on the first couple of series. That has led to some of the highest PROE games and some of the lowest PROE games in the league this season, which is an interesting dynamic to break down when we're looking to narrow down the offensive tendencies from the Colts this year. The combination of those fluid tendencies with an up-tempo design has led to some elite game environments, which is something we're always looking to identify and attack. Based on the micro matchups present against the Bengals, I would expect the team to begin the game with a run-balanced approach with an ever-present probability of adjustments from there. Zach Moss played a massive 94% of the team's offensive snaps in the absence of Jonathan Taylor in Week 13, which is both ridiculous and beautiful. That might seem foreign at first glance, but is in line with what we saw out of Moss earlier in the season with Taylor out. Furthermore, the state of this roster is likely to have that trend continue into the future, with just Trey Sermon on the active roster behind the top two backs and Tyler Goodson likely to get another game day elevation from the practice squad. That means another solid chance at 22-25 to running back opportunities for Moss, assuming the game environment cooperates. And even then, Moss has proven to be capable through the air. The matchup against the Bengals is a solid one on paper, as Cincinnati has allowed a robust 4.8 yards per carry behind 1.56 yards allowed before contact, which is ranked 31st. That has led to opposing backfields averaging 22.3 DK points per game against the Bengals, while scoring 11 total times through 12 games played. The Colts came out of their Week 11 bye as a more concentrated pass offense, shedding Isaiah McKenzie from their game plans in favor of the rookie Josh Downs. That leaves the primary pass catchers as a tight unit, consisting of Michael Pittman and Alec Pierce in every down rolls, with downs in a standard for a slot man 60-75% to 75% snap rate roll. The tight ends are a nasty conglomeration of four bodies, all of whom mix in for non-negligible snap rates on a weekly basis, leaving all of Kyle Granson, Mo Alley-Cox, Drew Ogletree, and Will Mallory off the weekly fantasy radar. As for the matchup, the Bengals are typically tight against perimeter-wide receivers that don't work the middle of the field due to their zone-heavy, prevent-style defensive shell. That has left them most susceptible to pass-catching, running backs, inline tight ends, and wide receivers that work the middle of the field through crossing routes, inward-breaking routes, and screens. 
That, sadly, is a tough ask for the one-dimensional style of Pierce after his breakout game, leaving Pittman, Moss, and Downs as the likeliest contributors through the air. How Cincinnati will try to win. We got a breath of fresh air from Zach Taylor's Bengals with Jake Browning under center in Week 13 after the team floundered in the rookie's first career start the week prior. Browning attempted just 26 passes in the team's 16-10 loss to the Steelers in Week 12 before airing it out 37 times in the team's narrow win over the Jaguars on Monday Night Football last week. Browning looked poised and in control on his way to 354 yards through the air and two combined touchdowns, one through the air and one on the ground. The elite efficiency, 32 of 37, and end results aside, the fact that Taylor reverted back to an aggressive offensive game plan helps to bolster our confidence in this offense in the absence of Joe Burrow for the remainder of the season. Considering the Bengals held the league's second-highest PROE with Burrow under center, it's likely we see a pass-balanced offensive approach moving forward. When we now take into account a Colts defense that plays extreme rates of cover three in an attempt to limit explosive plays, we should see the Bengals emphasize their top playmakers as they are forced to string together drives. That should land squarely on Jamar Chase and Joe Mixon's shoulders, with T. Higgins the next man up. Joe Mixon has continued to operate in this more-than-a-lead-back-but-less-than-a-workhorse role for the Bengals, although Chase Brown showed some legitimate explosiveness on just 11 offensive snaps a week ago, igniting multiple drives with splash runs against a good Jaguars run defense. Mixon saw 19 carries and 7 targets on his way to his highest fantasy performance of the season a week ago, scoring twice and catching 6 targets for 49 yards. While the Colts' defensive tendencies limit explosive runs, they are susceptible to giving up a high rate of 5-10 to 10 yard carries, which aligns well with Mixon's game considering a low explosive run rate, just 4 breakaway runs all season, which for his workload is lol-worthy. Even so, Mixon should have a solid path to elite volume for the second consecutive week in a matchup that looks good on paper against a Colts defense, allowing 4.2 yards per carry behind a robust 1.42 yards allowed before contact. Furthermore, 14 combined touchdowns allowed to opposing backfields has left the Colts allowing the fourth most DK points per game to running backs this season. We've talked about the fact that cover three alignments typically allow an opposing quarterback to target his first read at a higher frequency than cover two in quarters, which plays into what we saw last week when Browning peppered Jamar Chase with 12 targets. Things set up for another double-digit target performance from the alpha wide receiver here. As was mentioned earlier, Mixon remained heavily involved in the pass game last week after seeing five or more targets in three of his previous five games. Higgins rejoined the active roster to a 78% snap rate, which is slightly lower than he had been running prior to his recent injuries, which started way back in week four. Expect the team to continue in an 11 personnel heavy approach to their offense, which means Chase, Higgins, and slotman Tyler Boyd in 80% plus snap rate roles, with Trent Irwin and Andre Iosevis now relegated to situational packages. They combined for 22 of a possible 73 offensive snaps a week ago, which is likelier to decline than increase due to Higgins' health. Likeliest Game Flow Based on what we've seen out of each of these coaching staffs in recent weeks, this game has all the makings of a true eruption spot. The dynamic play-calling tendencies exhibited by Shane Steichen's Colts adds to the aggressive tendencies we saw out of Zach Taylor's Bengals in Jake Browning's second career start. That doesn't guarantee that this game is the eruption spot of the slate, but it places this game squarely in the discussion for top potential game environment on what has the feel of a low-scoring slate. All the typical names from each team are in consideration on rosters that attack this spot, and they can all be used as one-offs or mini-correlations. Enjoying the game breakdowns? 
Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Jaguars at Browns. Kickoff Sunday, December 10th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 31. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. If you like backup quarterbacks, this game is for you. Jacksonville is playing on a short week after an ugly loss to the Bengals on Monday night and dealing with the shock of an ugly Trevor Lawrence injury. The Jaguars also lost their leading wide receiver, Christian Kirk, to a groin injury. Jacksonville faces the third highest opponent pass rate in the league, and the Browns had their highest pass rate of the season in Joe Flacco's first start in Week 13. This is a critical game for both of these teams as the Browns fight to hold on to their wildcard spot and the Jaguars have two teams nipping at their heels in the AFC South. How Jacksonville will try to win. The Jaguars seemed like they would have things on cruise control to a repeat AFC South title after their Week 12 road win in Houston gave them a two-game lead in the division. Fast forward a week and they have lost their starting quarterback and leading wide receiver and gave up nearly 500 yards of total offense on national TV to a team quarterbacked by a 27-year-old undrafted journeyman in his second career start. Life comes at you fast in the NFL. This week, Jacksonville faces a Browns team that is already very familiar with the challenges of trying to win in the NFL with a backup quarterback. The Browns rank top three in the NFL against both the run and the pass while they have feasted on some of the inferior opponents they have faced this year. No one in the NFL plays man coverage at a higher rate than the Browns, and Jacksonville just lost their man-beater and primary slot receiver Christian Kirk. Put simply, the Browns' defense is very aggressive and dares their opponents to beat them in one-on-one matchups before their elite pass rush, which is graded third by PFF, gets home. Zay Jones is not a separator, and Calvin Ridley is more effective against zone coverage and when he has time to create separation on more complex routes. A backup quarterback under duress is going to need quick reads and hot routes to have any sort of success, meaning Jacksonville is likely to focus heavily on their running game, screens, and perhaps an increased role for tight end Evan Ingram, who scored his first touchdown of the season last week. There really isn't much more to say on the Jag side of things. Their best chance of victory is going to be hiding quarterback C.J. Beathard and winning the turnover and field position battles. Jacksonville's defense has been very good this season, outside of a couple ugly performances. However, those ugly performances have primarily come at the hands of offenses with elite offensive talent. Jamar Chase and company last week, the 49ers juggernaut, C.J. Stroud before we knew how good he really was. The Browns' offense is likely to throw a lot, but they are not loaded with elite playmakers, especially with Amari Cooper likely to miss. Because of that, Jacksonville should enter this game with a very conservative mindset and hope to keep the game close and let the Browns shoot themselves in the foot at some point with turnovers of their own. How Cleveland will try to win Joe Flacco came out of left field to start last week for the Browns and actually looked pretty good. The Browns actually threw the ball at a higher rate and more aggressively down the field than they have all season as they adjusted to their fourth starting quarterback of the year. The Browns lost 36-19 to the Rams, but that game was much closer than the final score would indicate, with a halftime score of 13-10 and the Browns scoring a touchdown with 8.49 left in the game to pull within 2019. They then missed the extra point. The Rams scored two touchdowns and a safety in the final four minutes of the game, but anyone watching that game knows how close the Browns were to a victory. Cleveland is waiting to name a starting quarterback for this week, but it seems more likely than not that they will give the nod to Flacco again this week as they look to hold on to an AFC playoff spot. Flacco's move into the starting lineup changed a lot of dynamics for the Browns' offense. 
After starting three different quarterbacks this year, who all move very well and create things with their legs, Flacco has maybe the strongest arm and definitely the least agility they have had under center in 2023. The Browns rank 29th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation this year, but Flacco's 44 pass attempts in Week 13 were the most by the Browns in a game this season. As noted earlier, this was a game that was competitive throughout, so it isn't like that shift was simply because of a blowout or bad game script. Star wide receiver Amari Cooper suffered a concussion and seems likely to miss this week, while Elijah Moore was targeted 12 times and saw a whopping 257 air yards, the most by any receiver in the NFL in a game this year. The Browns' tight ends were also favorites of Flacco, with Harrison Bryant and David Njoku combining for 11 targets, as the Browns played 12 personnel at an increased rate, and Bryant saw the most playing time and offensive involvement he has seen all year. Assuming Flacco starts again, we should expect Cleveland to once again pass at an elevated level against a Jaguars team that has the NFL's number one ranked DVOA run defense and that was torched by Jake Browning on Monday Night Football. While the Browns may not be the most efficient passing offense in the league, the volume should be there. They may have a lot of three and outs, but they will be okay with that and will likely be confident in their own elite defense against a backup quarterback on the other side. Likeliest Game Flow The reality of this game is that we have two backup quarterbacks facing elite defenses and both teams are fighting to keep their playoff hopes alive. The extremely low total is one of the lowest we've seen in recent years and is indicative of the most likely scenario for how this game plays out, with neither team likely to have a great deal of offensive efficiency and both defenses being extremely stout against subpar offensive competition to this point in the season. While a low-scoring defensive battle is easy to project, and it is hard to anticipate either of these teams having a great deal of offensive success, this is a spot with a lot of potential variance. The quickest way to games picking up in scoring is through turnovers, and it would not be shocking for either defense to force two or three first-half turnovers from the opposing quarterback. With that in mind, the implied team totals for both teams make sense, but it would not be a surprise for either team to walk out of this game with a 27-10 victory. Even in that scenario, however, offensive production and yardage are likely to be hard to come by, as either team falling behind and becoming one-dimensional would likely be a disaster, and either team building a two-score lead would likely lead to an extremely conservative game plan. A low-scoring battle like the game's spread and total imply, or an ugly lopsided loss in either direction is squarely in play, while a back-and-forth affair with 45-plus points being scored seems like a pipe dream. Panthers at Saints, kickoff Sunday, December 10th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 38. Game Overview, by Pappy. The Panthers have the worst record in football at 1-11, and were just the first team to be mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. Chuba Hubbard played 65% of the snaps the past two weeks and has taken over as the lead back. Jonathan Mingo saw the most targets of his career last week at 10, and looks to be more involved under interim head coach Chris Tabor. The Saints have a losing record at 5-7, but are still just one game out of first place in the NFC South. Alvin Kamara has a premier matchup on the ground, but the Panthers are above average against running backs in the passing game. Derek Carr is in concussion protocol for the second time this season, opening the door for Jameis Winston to start and for Taysom Hill to see more snaps at QB. How Carolina Will Try to Win the 1-11 Panthers limp into Week 14 fresh off having been mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. They are the first team to earn that distinction, and there isn't much to be happy about in Carolina. If looking for a silver lining, six of the Panthers' 11 losses have come by one score, but even that stat is a bit misleading because that one score was often a touchdown. 
The Panthers tend to lose by a touchdown to mediocre teams and get killed by good teams. Tabor took over as the interim head coach from the fired Frank Reich last week. Tabor has been in the NFL since 2008, but he's never been more than a special teams coordinator. The Panthers didn't change much under Tabor. They kept playing at a moderate speed, 16th overall pace, and offensive coordinator Thomas Brown kept calling the plays. It doesn't matter how fast you move or who is running the scheme when you have poor quarterback play. Bryce Young continued to look like he doesn't belong in the NFL. A subpar athlete with raw decision-making skills, Young has a long way to go before he's a threat to NFL defenses. The Panthers might as well let him try, but they have limited him to under 31 attempts in three straight games. They seem to know what they have, and what they have is a QB who they don't want racking up pass attempts. Young hasn't been good, but it doesn't help that he's playing behind a horrific 32nd ranked by PFF and injured offensive line. The Saints have been awful at generating pressure, their 31st in sack percentage, but they can still win up front in this weakness-on-weakness -weakness matchup. The Saints have been solid through the air, ranking 11th in DVOA, and hurt on the ground, ranking 22nd in DVOA, setting up as a mini-run funnel. That's just what the doctor ordered for the Panthers, who are 20th in pass rate over expectation. The Panthers throw a lot, 7th in pass rate, because they're always losing, but they'd rather run, and this matchup sets up well for them to lean into their preferred method of attack. Even though the Panthers want to run, they aren't very good at it, ranking 28th in DVOA, but technically, it's still the strength of their offense since they stink through the air, ranking 30th in DVOA. Tabor seems to realize that he is a lame duck, who is keeping the head coaching chair warm for the new face next season. He isn't going to change much, and Thomas Brown seems to have figured out the Panthers play closer games when he limits Young's opportunities to make mistakes. Expect another run-oriented game plan from the Panthers that is designed to hide Young. How New Orleans Will Try to Win The 5-7 Saints come into Week 14 riding a three-game losing streak. Incredibly, there's still only one game out of first place in the lifeless NFC South. It feels silly, but the Saints still have a lot to play for, and should be the more motivated team. Pete Carmichael Jr. plays fast, ranked 6th in overall pace, because he thinks that is what makes you a sharp coach. Meanwhile, he runs one of the blandest offenses in the league that relies on winning individual matchups. Carr's health seems to be up in the air every week, as he picked up a multitude of new ailments before leaving last week's game against the Lions. He's dealing with shoulder and rib injuries and is in the concussion protocol. Basically, the same injuries as a car crash. Carr is still technically questionable, but this is his second time in concussion protocol this season, which makes it likely that he will sit this week. That leaves everybody's favorite, Jameis Winston, to start in his place. Winston is known as a gunslinger, but the Saints have favored the run, ranking 18th in PROE, and the presence of Winston is likely to make the coaching staff even more conservative. The Saints' O-line grades out below average, at 20th ranked per PFF, but they'll be up against the pitiful pass rush, 29th in sack percentage, of the Panthers. The Saints should be able to win up front in a weakness-on-weakness -weakness matchup. The Panthers have been below average against the pass, ranking 22nd in DVOA, and devastated on the ground, ranking 32nd in DVOA. OWS has been sounding the alarm for weeks now on how the Panthers have turned into the league's top-run funnel. Most importantly, the rest of the NFL has been treating them as such, and their run defense has been actively attacked week in and week out. Carmichael has wanted to lean into the run even with a healthy car. With Winston under center, it raises the chances that he tries to limit his QB's mistakes. 
Carmichael is fortunate, as this is the perfect matchup for a run-heavy game plan. Expect the typical run-centric game plan we see every week against the Panthers, with a good chance the Saints want to stick to that plan as a relatively large home favorite with a backup QB who has been prone to mistakes in the past. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a tiny total, 37.5, which is mostly because the Panthers' offense isn't expected to do much scoring. They have a team total below 17, which has become a weekly occurrence. The Panthers' coaches seem to have lost faith in Young. They have nothing to lose by letting him air it out, but they'd rather use a conservative game plan and try to keep things close. This is a good matchup for the Panthers on the ground, which raises the chances they will find success and stick with a run-based attack for as long as things are close on the scoreboard. The Saints seem likely to start Winston in a matchup the coaching staff probably believes they can win with defense and running. Everyone goes after the Panthers' run defense, and this week should be no exception. Expect the Saints to come out with a run-first mindset and to stick with that approach while slowly building a lead. They're unlikely to pull away fast enough to force the Panthers to abandon the early run, which will lead to a game with a lot of handoffs and clock bleeding from both sides. The Saints should be able to run out the clock late, comfortably up by a touchdown. The Texans at the Jets. Kickoff Sunday, December 10th at 1 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 33. Game Overview by Hilo. The Texans have some major names on their injury report to begin the week. Wide receiver Tank Dell is done for the season after his gnarly leg injury suffered in Week 13. Offensive tackle Laramie Tunsil, knee, offensive tackle George Fant, hip, and safety Jimmy Ward, shoulder, all missed practice on Wednesday with various ailments. All three are primary contributors on this team. Tight end Dalton Schultz, hamstring, got in a limited session Wednesday after missing Week 13. Wide receiver Noah Brown, knee, got in a limited session Wednesday, which is important because he is now expected to enter the starting lineup on the perimeter for the Texans. Jets running back Brees Hall, ankle, and wide receiver Jason Brownlee, ankle, did not practice Wednesday. This is the first we've heard about either injury. This game opened with a game total of 36.5 points, which has been bet down to just 33.0 over growing concerns regarding the weather at MetLife Stadium. This is a weather game in what is being dubbed a weather week. We know the drill by now. The field is highly likely to overreact to weather on this slate. I'll pass along weather updates as the weekend draws near. How Houston will try to win. Texans offensive coordinator Bobby Slowick has more or less run the gamut when you look at his play-calling tendencies this season, notably starting the year with a forward-leaning, layered aerial attack before spending the next four weeks with the highest first-down rush rate in the league, before then returning to a more unpredictable design until now. Knowing the path he has taken, it becomes a little more difficult to ascertain how he is likeliest to approach this spot against one of the better all-around defenses in the league, in expected inclement weather, without a primary contributor on offense, rookie wide receiver Tank Dell, in a potential absence of both his elite starting offensive tackles. We spent a lot of time diagnosing what Tunzel and Fant meant to this offense when Tunzel returned to the lineup in the middle of the season. Slowick has been able to stay ahead of the sticks recently through unpredictable tendencies, solid efficiency on first down behind a dynamic run-blocking scheme, and unreal efficiency from his rookie quarterback. Not that those things can't happen in this spot, they just become a lot more difficult given the circumstances. 
All of that to say, there is a bit more uncertainty with this Houston offense than we have seen in some time. There is also something to say of the fact that the Jets face the highest rush rate of any team in the league this season, 49.63%. As we've explored previously, Devin Singletary is the back most suited for the zone-gap run-blocking scheme recently employed by Slowick. He handily outpaced one-read grinder Damian Pierce in the latter's first game back from injury in Week 12, but the two ran in a near-even timeshare the following week, with Pierce seeing 38% of the offensive snaps and handling 15 carries and zero targets to the 46% snap rate, 8 carries and 1 target of Singletary. It was also Pierce that had his number called in the green zone, scoring from 3 yards out in the first quarter. It appears as if this backfield has reverted to the messy timeshare we saw during the first eight weeks of the season, leaving a lot to be desired from either back. The fact that the Jets have faced the highest rush rate this season adds a bit to the workload expectation for Pierce, who has struggled to just 3.0 yards per carry and has just two breakaway runs through nine games played. The pure rushing matchup is middling, at best, against a Jets defense holding opponents to 4.1 yards per carry behind 1.24 yards allowed before contact. The pure magic of this offense has been, and should continue to be, the aerial attack. The problem is that the Jets' defense has held opponents to just 5.2 net yards per pass attempt and 176.6 total pass yards per game this season. That almost certainly does not mean the Texans are precluded from finding success in this spot. It just means that it will be much more difficult. Furthermore, Nico Collins enters the bonkers elite discussion on snaps played in the absence of Dell this season, and he should be considered the primary option through the air for the remainder of the season. Brown is expected to enter the starting lineup opposite Collins and has produced when called upon this season, most notably rattling off consecutive games of more than 150 receiving yards while either Collins or Robert Woods were sidelined earlier this season. Both Brown and Schultz are currently on the team's injury report, but both should join Collins as the top options through the air should they work their way into active status by the weekend. Woods and John Mechie are likely to round up the pass-catching core, both likely to be held under 60% of the offensive snaps. The Jets lead the league in DK points allowed per game to wide receivers this season at just 23.4 points, notably allowing the most receiving touchdowns to tight ends through 13 weeks, 7. Finally, the fact that they have allowed just three receiving scores all season to opposing wide receivers is troubling. How New York will try to win The Tim Boyle experience went about as we expected, working out as well as a hole in the headwood. The poor dude was not set up for success, but his play resulted in his release this week with the team signing Brett Ripon off the Seattle practice squad. That paves the way for Zach Wilson to, allegedly, reportedly, begrudgingly re-enter the starting lineup for the Jets. There were reports coming out of New York that Wilson didn't want to play or had to be talked into starting for the remainder of the season. Look, I can't speak to the validity of those reports, but it is notable that head coach Robert Saleh felt the need to address those issues with the media on Tuesday. Either way, expect Wilson back under center for the Jets in Week 14. The Jets averaged 14.5 points scored in eight games Wilson started and finished this season, 
which is right in line with the 14.3 points per game they have scored over the course of the full season. That said, they scored 14 points or more in just three of those starts, 20 against the Chiefs, 31 against the Broncos, and 20 against the Eagles. In those three games where they scored 14 points or more with Wilson under center, they scored a whopping four offensive touchdowns. The Jets rank near the middle of the pack in pass rate over expectation and have the third highest overall pass rate at 64.94%, largely influenced by their inability to sustain drives on offense. It goes without saying, this team's identity starts with their defense, with their offense primarily charged with not losing the game. Hall has operated in a lead-back role since week 6, seeing snap rates between 60% and 70% in the previous seven games during that time. On the season, Hall has handled 62.8% of the backfield opportunities, averaging 11.4 carries and 4.0 targets per game, while seeing a modest 17 red zone opportunities through 13 games played. His 25.6% stuffed run rate is amongst the six highest in the league, while his 5.1% breakaway run rate ranks 16th, highlighting his boom-bust running style. The New York offensive line has done him no favors, blocking for just 1.2 yards before contact. The matchup against the Texans' defense, allowing just 3.6 yards per carry behind just 1.0 yards allowed before contact, both third lowest in the league, is far from ideal, leaving Hall in troubled company for Week 14. Dalvin Cook has transitioned from change of pace back to clear passing down back after the release of Michael Carter before Week 11, and has seen just 18 running back opportunities in the previous three games. The Jets started the season utilizing elevated rates of 12 personnel through Tyler Conklin, C.J. Uzoma, and Jeremy Ruckert, but played with extreme rates of 11 personnel over the previous three games with Boyle as their primary quarterback, primarily because he came on in relief three weeks ago, played a full contest in Week 12, and then left early in Week 13. We can't be certain whether the recent changes in the wide receiver room were through necessity or desperation but this team has had a revolving door at wide receiver over the previous three games outside of Garrett Wilson in an every-down role. Alan Lazard was inactive for one of those three games, while Randall Cobb was inactive for two of them, leaving Brownlee to start opposite Wilson on the perimeter and Javier Gibson to start in the slot. The injury to Brownlee could force Lazard back into a featured perimeter role but he has been one of the least efficient wide receivers in the league this season, ranking in the bottom 10 in yards per route run amongst qualified wide receivers. The three-game stretch of heavier rates of 11 personnel has zapped Uzoma's involvement the most, as he played just 11 total offensive snaps during that time. Anyway you slice it, this pass offense is very much the Garrett Wilson and then everyone else variety. The problem there is that Wilson has been most dominant against man coverage this season, and the Texans are in a man at bottom 10 rates, as they aim to limit explosive plays through increasing utilization of cover 2, cover 3, and quarters alignments, which makes sense considering head coach D'Amico Ryan's history. Likeliest Game Flow the state of the Texans pairs with the identity of the Jets to leave this game with a rather wide range of potential outcomes, primarily introduced through the unknowns regarding how efficient we can expect the Houston offense to be in this spot. We know the Jets face the highest opponent rush rate at nearly 50% this year, and we've seen Slowick utilize a run-heavy approach in the past. 
but the injuries to both offensive tackles are highly likely to influence the efficiency of a run offense that utilizes advanced zone blocking concepts, including pulling tackles, cross-blocking utilities, and down-blocking concepts. That said, this game environment is most likely to be influenced by the Texans and their ability to sustain drives early in the game. Considering everything discussed above, the likeliest scenario leaves a lot to be desired in that setup, but this is still a Houston offense that should be considered one of only a handful of units that leans into recent league trends, aiming to exploit the new age NFL tendencies. The Vikings at the Raiders. Kick off Sunday, December 10th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Both teams are coming off a Week 13 bye and should be fully rested and very healthy. The Vikings look to bounce back from a couple of tough losses they had heading into their bye week as they fight for a playoff spot in the NFC. Justin Jefferson is practicing in full as he is on pace to return from a lengthy absence due to a hamstring injury. Joshua Dobbs will remain the Vikings' starting quarterback despite a four-interception performance in Minnesota's last game. Las Vegas is theoretically still alive for the playoffs, and Minnesota would be the number six seed in the NFC if the playoffs started today. Both teams have had a run-heavy approach in recent weeks, with the Raiders relying on Josh Jacobs since their head coaching change and the Vikings scaling back their pass rate since Kirk Cousins was injured. How Minnesota will try to win. The Vikings have had a wild season this year, as they started out horribly, and many people were wondering if they would tank the year for a high draft pick after a 1-3 start. They turned things around, however, as Cousins was having a fantastic season and their defense ironed things out under first-year defensive coordinator Brian Flores. Even a torn Achilles for Cousins didn't derail them at first, as they responded with wins over the Falcons and Saints in their first two games with Dobbs at quarterback. Things fell apart quickly, however, as they lost their last two games against the Broncos and Bears prior to last week's bye. The big issue in those losses, which came by a combined three points, was that they had seven total turnovers compared to only two for their opponents. There was talk prior to their Week 13 bye that Dobbs could be benched, but he has been confirmed as the starter for this week, albeit likely with a shorter leash. When you think about it, sticking with Dobbs makes sense. As maddening as those losses are, the fact that they were such narrow losses despite the massive negative turnover differential points to the fact that the Vikings are on the right track and just need to take better care of the ball. As for what that means for Week 14 against the Raiders, the return of Jefferson will certainly play a role here. The Vikings are likely to be a bit more conservative this week in terms of giving Dobbs easier reads and emphasizing his need to take care of the ball. That being said, the mere presence of Jefferson should open things up across the field and make his reads easier and, when all else fails, give him one of the best playmakers in the league to rely on. The Raiders' defense looked great in the first two games of the Antonio Pierce era, but that likely had more to do with facing the Jets and Giants than any massive swing in their level of play. They seemed to fall back to earth in their Week 12 loss to the Chiefs, whose offense has looked very pedestrian for most of the season, but went off against the Raiders. Minnesota has the fourth-highest pass rate over expectation in the NFL this season, 
And while we should expect them to be more conservative this week than they were early in the season with Cousins, they are unlikely to turn into a run-based offense now that their elite receiving core is back intact. We should expect a healthy dose of easy first-read targets for Jefferson and TJ Hawkinson, with the coaching staff encouraging Dobbs to either use his legs to run for yards or check down to the running backs if those initial looks aren't there, rather than taking the chance of giving this game away with multiple avoidable turnovers again. How Las Vegas will try to win. The Raiders have obviously had their share of issues this season, something that is evident by the massive turnover in their coaching staff and front office. That being said, they have been very competitive since said turnover and are playing at a high level, at least from an effort standpoint, since Pierce took over. After winning their first two games under Pierce, they lost by a touchdown to the Dolphins in a game where they were down by only one point at halftime and held Miami to only six second-half points. Following that, they lost by two touchdowns to the Chiefs, but they jumped out to a 14-0 lead and were down only 21-17 entering the fourth quarter. Looking at things from a macro perspective, the Raiders have handily beaten the bad teams they've faced under Pierce and have been very competitive deep into games against the two higher-end opponents they've faced. This week, the Raiders will face an opponent who falls somewhere in the middle of those extremes when the Vikings come to town. Jacobs has operated as the centerpiece of this offense since Pierce took over, with opportunity counts of 26, 29, 15, and 26 in that four-game stretch. Las Vegas has taken its coach's smash-mouth personality, and their preferred method of attack is riding Jacobs as their bell cow and setting things up for rookie quarterback Aiden O'Connell off those running plays. Devontae Adams has been a favorite as well, averaging 10 targets per game since O'Connell was named the full-time starter and seeing a massive target share when the Raiders are blitzed. The Vikings blitz at the highest rate in the NFL, and we should expect a lot of hot reads to Adams as the Raiders look to heavily involve their two primary playmakers. When teams have keyed on Adams, Jacoby Myers has done a great job of making them pay with several very good games this season. The Raiders have also involved Myers on some end-arounds and jet sweeps as they have kept defenses on their toes. Las Vegas has also given rookie tight end Michael Mayer a full-time role and he has played over 80% of the offensive snaps in five straight games, while seeing at least four targets in each of his last three games. Minnesota's run defense has been very solid this year, and they are unlikely to let the Raiders' offense, with its mediocre offensive line play, move the ball consistently by pounding it on the ground. Rather, the Vikings will force the young O'Connell to make some plays through the air while under the duress of their exotic blitzes. Likeliest Game Flow This is a game that has a lot of conflicting factors. While both teams have big names and explosive ability, we also must consider the fact that both coaching staffs are likely to enter the game with a conservative mindset. The Raiders because it is how their coach wants to play, and the Vikings because they have likely lost some trust in their current quarterback. With that in mind, the likeliest game flow here is a relatively slow-moving game from a scoring standpoint, as both teams are likely to move the ball well, but the Raiders seem unlikely to force the ball down the field, and the Vikings are likely to be gun-shy after giving away their last two games. All of that being said, there is a lot of implied volatility here. The aforementioned turnovers that have plagued Dobbs, along with his playmaking ability through his legs and receiving core, create a lot of avenues for this game to open up. 
The Vikings' aggressive defensive scheme facing a young quarterback also provides a very viable path to this game opening up. While the easiest game script to map out would be both teams keeping things close to the vest throughout the first half and into at least the third quarter, there are just so many ways for that script to get flipped that it is easy to get more excited for this game than you usually would for a spot with a couple of quarterbacks who opened the year as afterthoughts in a game with an over-under of only 41 points. The Seahawks at the 49ers. Kickoff Sunday, December 10th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 46.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson This is a rematch of a game from two weeks ago, when the 49ers dominated the Seahawks and won 31-13 on the road. The 49ers are 9-0, and are averaging 33.4 points per game in games that Debo Samuel and Trent Williams both play and have scored at least 27 points in every game that qualifies. In games that Samuel and Williams missed all or part of, the 49ers are 0-3, averaging 17 points per game. Seattle's defense looks solid early in the year, but has given up 26 or more points in four of their last five games. Dating back to the start of 2022, the 49ers have won the last four matchups between these teams by an average score of 30-14. to How Seattle will try to win The Seahawks got off to a hot start this season and had a 5-2 record through Week 8 before dropping four of their last five games to fall into a battle with several other teams for a wildcard spot in the NFC. A big part of the Seahawks' early season success had to do with a defense that looked very good, but the biggest factor likely was the opponents they were facing. Put simply, the Seahawks have won several games against teams with poor records and or backup QBs. While they did put up quite a fight against the Cowboys last Thursday night, the Seahawks' downfall in 2023 has coincided with a significant increase in the degree of difficulty of their opponents, which should not be surprising. As we enter Week 13 and try to project how this Seahawks team will approach the game, we have to look first at the struggles of their defense and the potency of the 49ers' offense. In the last meeting between these teams, they played on a short week, and Geno Smith was dealing with an elbow injury. After a huge performance against the Cowboys in Week 13, it is safe to say that Smith's elbow is now healthy, and Seattle has had extra time to prepare for this game. The Seahawks have given up 26 or more points in four of their last five games, the only exception being a 17-16 loss to the Rams in a game in which Kyron Williams did not play and Cooper Cup exited in the first quarter with an ankle injury. On the flip side, the 49ers at full strength this season have been a cheat code to score 30 points, reaching that total in eight of nine games in which both Debo Samuel and Trent Williams were healthy. Combining those factors, we can safely say that Seattle should enter this game expecting to score many points if they want to pull off an upset. Head coach Pete Carroll prefers to grind teams out, and they do know the 49ers well. But this San Francisco offense has been a freight train, and the Seahawks' defense is not one of their vintage units that can shut anyone down. Regardless of Carroll's preferences, Seattle will enter this game with an aggressive mindset or be pushed to it quickly. Adding to the Seahawks' offensive issues are the injuries in their backfield. Kenneth Walker has missed the last two games with an oblique injury and missed practice to start this week. 
Zach Charbonnet has assumed the lead role in Walker's absence, but is dealing with a knee injury now and missed Wednesday's practice as well. DJ Dallas is the next man up and is primarily a receiving back, further pushing the narrative that Seattle will have to throw the ball a lot in this spot. San Francisco faces the highest opponent pass rate in the league, and their opponents throw the ball, on average, 38.7 times per game. Seattle will have to throw the ball early and often in this one, with their trio of wide receivers involved at different levels. Their level of success is still in question, however, against a San Francisco defense that ranks third in pass defense DVOA, first in PFF pass rush grade, and third in PFF coverage grade. How San Francisco will try to win. The 49ers are on an absolute tear, and as long as they stay healthy, it is hard to see anyone knocking them off. They had a rough spell in the middle of the season with Debo Samuel and Trent Williams out with injuries, but otherwise, they've been downright dominant. In fact, if you go back to last season when Brock Purdy took over at quarterback, you can see that injuries have been the only thing that has slowed this team down. As explored in the Seattle section of this breakdown, the 49ers' offense at full strength is nearly a lock to score at least 30 points and scored 31 points on the road on a short week against the Seahawks just two weeks ago. This well-oiled unit doesn't need to adjust their game plans for their opponent as they can enter the game and play their style of football, then find the weakness in their opponents with shot plays and letting their explosive playmakers do their things. Seattle's defense plays the second-highest rate of zone coverage in the NFL. It is primarily designed to prevent explosive downfield plays, forcing their opponents to attack them underneath and banking on their defense swarming the ball and limiting yards after the catch. This strategy is definitely playing with fire against the 49ers' offense that is built to attack the short-to-intermediate areas of the field and let their elite skill position players tear things up from there. Another issue with the Seahawks' scheme in dealing with San Francisco is that their deep, conservative coverage shells necessitate a reliance on their defensive front to control the running game without loading the box. This is a problem, given the 49ers' elite running game scheme, PFF's fourth-graded run-blocking offensive line, and Christian McCaffrey, a.k.a. the best running back in the league. The 49ers are going to disperse the ball to their big four of CMC, Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, and George Kittle on basically every play for at least the first three quarters. And it is really hard to see them failing to score 30 points once again in this spot. Likeliest Game Flow This part of the game breakdown is relatively simple for this spot, as the likeliest game flow here is similar to basically every 49ers game. San Francisco's defense is too good for teams to have big scoring explosions and get ahead of them, and their offense has enough explosive pieces that teams can't hold them down forever. 49ers games often start somewhat slow as defenses throw different looks at them to deal with their elite offense. Still, Kyle Shanahan consistently adjusts and exploits their opponents, eventually breaking them down through scheme adjustments or finding different ways to get their studs the ball in space. The real question mark in this game seems to be whether this will end up like the last meeting between these teams, where Seattle was very bad offensively and unable to keep things competitive, or if they can replicate last week's offensive explosion in Dallas where they scored 35 points against a very good Cowboys defense. The likely answer is somewhere in between, as it would be very unsurprising for Seattle to manage only six offensive points with Geno healthy and having extra prep time. 
but the 49ers defense is also unlikely to let Seattle keep pace and score in the upper 20s. Assuming the 49ers avoid the injury bug, the fundamental questions in this game seem to be how quickly and to what extent San Francisco dominates this game. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Bills at the Chiefs. Kick off Sunday, December 10th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 48.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The NFL is once again gracing us with an outstanding Game of the Week in the afternoon window between two of the NFL's top teams. A loss will likely knock the Bills out of the AFC playoffs. Kansas City's offense continues to struggle to find a rhythm as we get into the late stages of the season. Buffalo's offense has appeared to be very potent once again since changing their offensive coordinator, scoring 66 points in the two games since the change. We should expect both teams to enter this game with an aggressive offensive mindset due to the respect they have for each other's quarterback. How Buffalo will try to win the Bills rank 5th in the NFL in cumulative point differential, having outscored their opponents by 101 points over the course of 12 games. Despite that elite performance, they enter Week 14 with a 6-6 six six record, and likely need to win out or, at worst, lose by only one more game to have a chance at making the playoffs. All six of Buffalo's losses have been by one score, with two of them coming in overtime and two others happening in the last 12 seconds of regulation. It truly has been a season of near misses as Buffalo has struggled to put it all together and seemingly continues to find new ways to lose games. While three of those losses have been relatively understandable against the Eagles, Bengals, and Jaguars, it is the close losses to the Broncos, Jets, and Patriots that really have put their season in jeopardy. This week is where the rubber meets the road for Buffalo, as they head into Kansas City for a showdown with their biggest rival of the last few years. The Bills' offense ranks third in the NFL in DVOA, while being top six in efficiency both in the passing game and on the ground. They are averaging 33 points per game in the two games since firing Ken Dorsey as their offensive coordinator, and appear to be intent on writing Josh Allen at this point which is probably a wise decision and should have happened a while ago. Allen set season highs in pass attempts, rush attempts, and rushing yards in their Week 12 loss to the Eagles. This week, against the Patrick Mahomes-led Chiefs, the Bills will undoubtedly lean heavily on Allen once again. The history between these teams and the respect they have for Mahomes will ensure that Buffalo enters this game with a point-acquisition mindset, knowing that no lead is safe until the clock hits zero. Kansas City's defense has been terrific this year and ranks third in the NFL in pass defense DVOA, but they are not an insurmountable unit by any means. Just last week, Jordan Love and the Packers diced them up for 267 passing yards and three passing touchdowns. The Chiefs also rank in the bottom half of the league in PFF pass rush and coverage grades, which indicates that they may be more vulnerable than their on-paper metrics would indicate. While Allen will be the backbone of the Buffalo attack, the running game won't be ignored completely against Kansas City's bottom five run defense. 
The increased use of Josh Allen's legs should only serve to create even bigger running lanes for James Cook and the other running backs when Buffalo does decide to run it. The Chiefs play at a high rate of man coverage and have historically, and this year, been very good against perimeter wide receivers. Their physical secondary can give some teams fits, but we should expect the route-running proficiency of Stephon Diggs and the mismatch versatility of Dalton Kincaid to be the focal points of the Bills' passing attack this week. Likewise, we should expect Buffalo to look to involve their running backs out of the backfield in the passing game and try to get Cook and Ty Johnson isolated against the Chiefs' linebackers in coverage. In Week 11 against the Jets, who play a similar man-heavy coverage style and have very good perimeter cornerbacks as well, Buffalo's running backs combined for six receptions, 76 receiving yards, and two touchdown receptions. Gabe Davis has had his better games this season against weaker secondaries and or teams that play more zone coverage. That, along with all of the other matchup factors this week, would seem to point to this game being one where he runs a lot of wind sprints while Diggs, Kincaid, and the running backs are Allen's primary targets. Regardless of the Chiefs' 2023 offensive struggles, this Bills team is going to enter Arrowhead Stadium on Sunday remembering the epic collapse they had there in the playoffs two years ago and approach every possession with the intent to accumulate points. How Kansas City Will Try to Win Halfway through the season, the Chiefs looked like they were on their way to another AFC number 1 seed with all roads to the Super Bowl coming through Kansas City. After losing three of their last five games, however, they are now tied with the Jaguars for the third best record in the AFC, and if they lose to the sleeping giant Bills team that they host this week, they could find themselves only one game ahead of Denver in their own division. The rest of their schedule looks relatively manageable, but the fact remains that this Chiefs team is likely going to have to put their best foot forward over the last month of the season if they want to be in a position for another Super Bowl run. The irony of it all is that the AFC is wide open this season due to a slew of quarterback injuries, and basically every one of the top contenders having some major issues they need to address. The biggest surprise of the Chiefs' season hasn't been that they are being pushed by the rest of the AFC. It is that it is happening despite all the other teams having their own issues, and that the Chiefs' offense has been what has let them down in most instances. After scoring 23 or more points in 14 of 17 regular season games in 2022, along with all three playoff games, Kansas City has reached that number only five times through 12 games this year. The Chiefs' running game ranks in the middle of the league in most metrics and has actually been more serviceable than many past years with Isaiah Pacheco operating as their bell cow. The passing game rates out well in some metrics, 5th in DVOA and 7th in PFF pass grade, but has not been able to consistently make things happen. While they have struggled for much of the year, they have had three games of 31, 31, and 41 points where everything seemed to come together. Those three games all happened to come against the Bears, Chargers, and Raiders and their middling defenses. Those three defenses happen to all play similar amounts of zone coverage with relatively common schemes. All three teams have also struggled to get pressure on the quarterback, and Mahomes had plenty of time to pick them apart. This makes sense, as the Chiefs receivers have not been able to create separation well, and Mahomes is able to pick apart zones and find guys when they have adequate time to get open. Buffalo plays a similar style of defense to those teams and has been giving to the better teams they have faced.
The Bills' defense has been disappointing this season, and the four best offenses they have faced, Miami, Jacksonville, Cincinnati, and Philadelphia, have averaged over 400 yards of offense per game against them. While the Chiefs are not the offense we have come to expect, they are likely to enter this game with an added sense of urgency as they have been put on their heels and face a similar foe who they know can put up points in a hurry. Some recent lapses by their previously near-elite defense will also likely cast some doubt in their minds as to how well they will be able to hold Josh Allen and company at bay. Similarly to what we discussed on the Bills' side of the ball, Mahomes is going to be aggressively pursuing points every time he touches the ball. If the Packers' young and upcoming offense was able to move the ball and get in the end zone consistently against the Chiefs' defense last week, then Andy Reid and Mahomes should enter this game expecting to need 30-plus points to beat Josh Allen and the Bills with their backs against the wall. Travis Kelsey will almost certainly have a huge role this week as he has struggled recently and been contained in all of their losses. He has historically been very good against the Bills' scheme, and getting him going will be a priority for the Chiefs. We should also expect Rashid Rice to be very busy on crossing routes and in the short to intermediate areas of the field, with the running backs also being used consistently in the passing game. Likeliest Game Flow These teams have both disappointed to date this season to varying degrees and for various reasons. That being said, both teams are still capable of achieving their ultimate goals and making a run in the wide-open AFC. As bad as things have run out for the Bills, they are capable of beating anyone and have shown so far this season that they are going to be in every game at the end. The Chiefs also only have one loss by more than one score, and that came on the road in a game where Mahomes was battling an illness against the Broncos. All things considered, neither of these teams is likely to lose by multiple scores, and that means that we are likely in store for a very competitive game. We have talked often over the last couple of years about how there are many times where how opposing offenses interact with each other is more important than how the offenses match up with the defenses they face. We have also talked about how teams enter some games knowing that no lead is safe due to the quarterback on the other side. Patrick Mahomes confirmed this mindset when he talked about it in the Netflix quarterback documentary, and this is one of those times where we should be able to count on two teams entering the arena ready to trade blows. While neither defense is a pushover, we can also confidently say that neither defense is an unbeatable juggernaut. The Bills have turned Josh Allen loose, and it is starting to feel like the Buffalo teams we saw for much of the last three years, where they are moving the ball seemingly at will. Now that they are using Allen's legs more and being more creative with some of their formations and play calls, it is really hard to get stops against this team. A competitive, high-scoring game is likely the outcome here, as two of the top quarterbacks of their generation take center stage for a matchup that will surely have huge implications in how the AFC playoff picture plays out. The Broncos at the Chargers Kickoff Sunday, December 10th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern, with an over-under of 44. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Both of these teams are theoretically still alive for the playoffs, but have extremely little margin for error. The Chargers have managed to score 16 combined points in their last two games. The Broncos have held seven consecutive opponents to 22 points or less. 
Denver's offense continues to attack in a conservative manner and use Russell Wilson in a game manager role. Los Angeles hopes to get wide receiver Joshua Palmer back from injury, which would be a big boost for an offense that is struggling to make plays. How Denver will try to win. The Broncos have had a bit of a roller coaster season, but they are in the thick of the AFC playoff hunt with a 6 and 6 record and all 3 of the current wildcard teams being only one game ahead of them and also playing with a backup QB. While many wrote off the Broncos early in the season, and it was hard not to after they gave up 70 points to the Dolphins, Sean Payton has done a nice job making this a consistently competitive squad that is far from an easy out on a weekly basis. This transformation has been largely due to a defense that has significantly improved after a sluggish, injury-riddled start to the year, and an offense that has taken Russell Wilson back to his early career game manager role that he had success with in Seattle. Denver's offense ranks 29th in pace of play and 32nd, aka dead last, in plays per game as their approach has been very methodical all year. There were a couple of games where they played faster, but those games were generally very inefficient showings, thus the resulting poor rankings in those two categories. As we have explored in prior weeks, the Denver's offense is generally very conservative and dedicates a huge portion of their offensive usage to their backfield. They rank 27th in pass rate over expectation and 22nd in overall pass rate through 13 weeks while Russell Wilson ranks near the bottom of the league in average intended air yards on pass attempts. Denver is a team that runs the ball often and likes to target the short area on checkdowns and design screens or swing passes often as an extension of the running game. They do take some calculated shots, as both of their Week 13 touchdowns came from shot plays downfield that were set up by play action. Again, this is reminiscent of what we saw from Russell Wilson in his Seattle days as they tried to win behind their defense and running game, then leveraged that to give Wilson clean pockets to cut loose downfield. This week, Denver faces a Chargers defense that has had its share of issues this season, but has been very good against conservative and lower-scoring units. After a rough start to the year, Los Angeles has allowed over 23 points only twice, 31 to the Chiefs and 41 to the Lions, in their last nine games. Those teams obviously have much more aggressive and explosive offenses than the Broncos, who have a pretty clear approach to winning games right now, and there is no reason to expect a drastic change this week. Denver is relying on their defense to create turnovers and short fields, and letting their opponents beat themselves a strategy that seems to be perfect for an opponent like the Chargers, who have found exciting new ways to lose games on several occasions this year. How Los Angeles Will Try to Win There was a time this year when the Chargers' offense looked like one of the elite units in the league. That time has passed. Over the last two weeks, the Chargers have scored only 16 total points and have averaged just over 4 yards per play. For reference on what that means, the Panthers and Giants are tied for last in the NFL this season at 4.1 yards per play. Injuries to their receiving core, reduced efficiency and explosiveness from their backfield, turnovers, and questionable play calling have all contributed to the Chargers' offense's fall from grace. This is truly a team on the edge, as they are likely one loss away from being eliminated from playoff contention and head coach Brandon Staley seems likely to be fired once that happens. 
On the other hand, the Chargers only have one game left on their schedule against a team that is currently over .500, and that is Week 18 against a Chiefs team whose playoff seed will likely be set by then, and who has consistently rested starters in those scenarios. For what it's worth, the most Chargers outcome to all of this would be for them to rattle off four straight wins before losing to the Chiefs' backups in Week 18. As for how Los Angeles will approach this game, they play at the fastest pace in the NFL and have the league's seventh highest PROE. Denver's secondary is best on the perimeter, and they are most susceptible on the ground and over the middle of the field. That would seem to be a good thing for the Chargers, as most of their offense flows through Keenan Allen and Austin Eckler. While Eckler has had a rough 2023 season, the Broncos have given up a ton of production to backfields this year, and his passing game role may see an uptick in this matchup. Quinton Johnston and Gerald Everett have been the main secondary receiving options for the Chargers recently, although Joshua Palmer has a chance to return to the lineup this week as well. Palmer's return would bode well for the team as he and Johnston can occupy the perimeter and let Allen, Everett, and Eckler operate as the engines for the offense in the middle of the field. Expect Los Angeles to play at their usual fast pace and throw at a high rate, but those passes to be of the conservative variety in the short, middle areas of the field as they try to avoid turnovers against a defense that has forced 15 turnovers in their four wins prior to last week before failing to force a turnover from the Texans in last week's 22-17 loss. Likeliest Game Flow This game is unlikely to turn into a shootout, and the most likely outcome is a competitive game played within one score in either direction and with both teams scoring in the high teens to low 20s. The Broncos are an extremely conservative and methodical team at this point that is not going to force explosive plays and will not be taking many shots early in the game. The Chargers are fighting for their lives, and while they play fast and throw often, their personnel does not lend itself to explosiveness at this point in the season, and Denver's very good perimeter corners do not present a spot where we should expect Los Angeles to try to fix those issues. The clear weakness of the Broncos' defense fits into the strengths of the Chargers' personnel, but even that potential fit is going to require long, extended drives full of short gains and then require efficiency in the red zone, an area where Denver's defense has been very good this year and where the Chargers' offense ranks 30th in the NFL over the last three weeks. The likeliest path to this game picking up in pace and scoring is likely through early Chargers' turnovers that give Denver easy points and an early lead. This may lead to Denver playing a bit looser defensively and Los Angeles picking things up on their end. This would also force Los Angeles to play a bit more aggressively on the defensive side and may open them up to a big play or two in the passing game on Russell Wilson's shot plays off play action. 